Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Amen. So I don't know how you take uh, that poetic sense and turn that into the very specific thing that's happening to you right now. But I do know this. I do know that if we fail to take that poetic truth about what goes on inside of us, the longing, the desire to bring something forward, to, to create something, to be something, to experience something, to have something, if we, if we fail to make that personal and we fail to make that something that is reasonable in us, then all kinds of confusing emotions sort of trap us And as I think about that this morning, I'd really like to just ask you, if you were to analyze what's going on inside of you, if you were to analyze how you feel this morning, how things are fitting together, what is it that you long for? What is the nature of the longing that sort of rises to the surface in you? It seems like because we have been taken out of our normal routines, there's a lot of things that are sort of boiling up inside of us, and they tend to boil up inside of us often in ways of activism, where where we're going to go conquer some things that we believe are unjust or unfair, they're not okay. And the problem with that at some level is we can only activate over our own opinions. It's hard for us to activate collectively because when we feel this longing, we are longing in very unique and different ways. And so my question is, what is the nature of the longing that you're experiencing right now? I I think this far into this process with COVID and the uncertainty of the future and now school starting, there's a whole new kind of longing. It's like a, another wave has hit. Like we had some energy for the first half, but now we've used up most of our reserves. And so what is happening to you? And what this morning would it mean to you if when we talk about overcoming longing, we're not talking about getting rid of longing. We're talking about dealing with longing in a much healthier way. That in fact... What if I were to suggest to you that, that longing is actually a very important and natural part of being a human being and being alive, and particularly about being a spiritual being? And so I want to talk about that and think about that with you a little bit this morning. George Eliot writes these words, It seems to me we can never give up longing and wishing while we are thoroughly alive. There are certain things we feel to be beautiful and good, and we must hunger after them. I love those words. So I don't think longing is necessarily bad. It it really is what we do with it, and it's how we see it. And, And sometimes when we see longing as sort of this, you know, need to go fix everything, that pushes us into some places that we might better not go. The dictionary defines uh, longing as a strong, persistent desire or craving, especially for something unattainable or distant. Longing. This idea has inspired a lot of beautiful words. Uh, 
Shakespeare in Antony and Cleopatra, Act 5, Scene 2, writes these words, Give me my robe, put on my crown, I have immortal longings in me. Great words. T. Greenwood in her book, Nearer the Sky, writes, Longing is deeper than want. It's not as simple as desire. It's more like missing something you never had. And then Carson McCullers writes these words, We are homesick most for the places we have never known. I hope that's sinking in. I know when we gather like this and you have distractions at home and things going on, I, I hope your soul's caught up with your body. I hope your brain has become present. I, I hope whatever you're eating right now it doesn't distract you. We're homesick most for the places we have never known. A.W. Tozier brings this right into our spiritual realm when he writes these words. The yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to touch and taste the unapproachable arises from the image of God in the nature of humans. Deep calls unto deep. And though polluted and landlocked by the mighty disaster theologians call the fall, the soul senses its origin and longs to return to its source. All of those ideas paint for us this image that, that longing is not something that we want to get rid of. It's something that we want to deal with in an appropriate manner. It's something that we want to understand and we want to engage. And so, what are you longing about? And then the question is, how do you deal with longing? What's your strategy? Is that just an emotion that floats around inside of you? Or, or is there actually some sort of intentional way in which you process the longing. I want to tell you three quick stories about longing, and then we're going to take some observations from those stories and wrap up our teaching time together. Three stories about three women who are all caught in the space of longing, and all are longing for a child, Rachel and Hannah and Elizabeth. And these three women deal with their longing in very unique ways. Let's talk about Rachel. Now, Rachel was the daughter of Laban, and Jacob had come and met Rachel and fallen in love with her. And he went to Laban, and he said, I would like to marry your daughter. And he said, okay, I'd, I'd rather give her to you than to somebody else, so here's the deal. If you will labor for me for seven years, then I will present to you my daughter Rachel, and you can take her as your wife. And so he works for seven years. We're told that, that, the, that the day, that the seven years seems just like a day because of his great love for Rachel. And finally, the seven years are complete, and he goes to Laban, his future father-in-law, and he says, I'd like now to marry Rachel. I fulfilled the contract. And, uh, and Laban says, great, we're going to throw the wedding. He invites the guests. Everybody gets together. There is a wedding. And then we're told that this really strange thing happens. And that is that Laban, instead of presenting Rachel as Jacob's bride, he presents Leah, her older sister. And Jacob doesn't know until the next morning. And he wakes up the next morning to find that that he has actually become married without his knowledge to the older daughter, Leah. We're not told a lot about Leah. We're told she has weak eyes. Well, she has weak eyes and that Rachel was beautiful and that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And so Jacob goes to Laban and says, listen, what, what did you do? What, what is, this is crazy. Why did you act like this? And, 
And Laban says, well, we don't marry the younger daughters before we marry off the older daughters. So I'll tell you what, uh, you know, you finish out your uh, bridal week with Leah, and then we'll present Rachel. There'll be another wedding next week. Can't see any of this going wrong. There'll be another wedding next week, and then you can work seven more years uh, uh, for the second daughter. And so that's what happens. Now, as that story unfolds, then Leah begins to bear children. And so she has four children in very rapid succession, and, and Rachel has no children. And Rachel becomes concerned, and she, she feels like she's losing her grip. And so what was the custom of the day, as we saw a few weeks ago with Hagar, what was the custom of the day is she took her servant and presented her servant as the third wife in this equation, and Jacob married this third wife, and through this third wife, he begins then to have sons. And now Rachel feels like she's established her place in the family. Leah has stopped having children, and so she starts to get a little bit worried and, and about her place and her standing. And she already knows that, that Jacob loves Leah more or loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. And, and so she then decides she'll present a fourth wife, and she presents her, her servant, and now Jacob has four wives and and he's having, so and just so we can level set here, we're back in the patriarchal period. There's Abraham, there's Isaac. Now we're with Jacob. Jacob is now having sons and daughters. We'll get to kind of all of them in a second. Eventually, he's going to have 13 children. Eventually, he's going to have 12 sons and one daughter. And those 12 sons will become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. I just want to be sure you understand that as we talk about this patriarchal structure, that God's redemptive work doesn't take place in the cleanest, most functional of situations. But consistently, faithfully, in the middle of these processes. Rachel comes to Jacob and says to him, Why have you done this to me? Why have you done this to me? And Jacob says, am I God that I can figure out how children are born and who gets to have children and all of that stuff? And so we're told now at this stage, after all of these wives and all of these children, Leah begins to have children again. And so after this long process, there are ten sons and one daughter 11 children. And then we're told at the end of all of this craziness, Rachel conceives and gives birth to a child, the 11th son, and his name is Joseph. Rachel will bear one more child. It will be much later when they've returned to the promised land. And once in the promised land, she'll bear the final son, and his name will be Benjamin, the final leader of the final tribe. Longing. The second story is about Hannah. Hannah. Hannah is a woman who is also in a marriage. Uh, her, her second wife is Paniah, and, and so the two of them are married, and each of them desire children. And Paniah has had many children, and we're told in this story in 1 Samuel that, that Paniah makes fun of, that she pokes fun, that she takes advantage of Hannah and the fact that she has no children. 
In fact, we're told in the story that Hannah's husband loves her deeply and says to her things like this, Why do you weep? Are not I more to you? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And of course the answer is no. And so she longs for it. And once a year they go to the temple of God and they present sacrifices. And we're told that Hannah's husband will give, him, give her twice as much to sacrifice before God. And so we're told that Hannah goes into the temple and she begins to pray. And Eli, the high priest, observes her praying. And she's pouring out her heart to God. And she's anguished. And she's weeping. And she's upset. And we're told that she's so upset, she's caught in this moment, that, that as she prays, her mouth moves, but no sound comes out. And Eli assumes that she's been drinking. He assumes that something's wrong with her. And he goes to her and says, listen, you need to clean up your act. You, you need to get things straight. You don't come in here to pray in that condition. And she says, oh, you've, you've misunderstood. What is causing me to act like this is the deep longing in me, the deep anguish in me. And as he listens to her story and he understands, he says, I, I, I pray that God would bless you with whatever it is that you need. We're told that she goes away and that a year later she returns and she has conceived a child and that child will become the prophet Samuel. And Samuel will eventually select and anoint the first king of Israel, King Saul. He will also be the prophet that speaks to Saul about the fact that God has withdrawn from him and will anoint instead his successor who is King David. And Hannah prayed. The third story takes place in the New Testament, the story of Elizabeth. And we know that Elizabeth is well on in years. Her husband Zechariah, they are both of the priestly descent. Zechariah serves in the temple as one of the priests. And we're told that on one occasion, as Zechariah serves in the temple, the angel appears to him and says, God's heard your prayer, and your wife is going to have a child. You're to call him John. And Zechariah says to the angel, how will I know this is true? One of my favorite scenes in all of the Bible. And Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. But because you have doubted, you will not be able to speak until this comes to pass. We're told that subsequently Elizabeth does become pregnant and she stays in seclusion for five months. Now, we don't know a lot about what's happened. We know this is a cousin of Mary and eventually Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and we know that the child she will bear is John the Baptist and we know how this whole story unfolds. But we don't get a lot of insight into who Elizabeth is. But maybe up in the center of the story, there's this phrase. Zechariah and Elizabeth obeyed the law, and walked blamelessly before the Lord. I don't know what her personality was. I don't know exactly what she was like. But I immediately get the impression of a woman who has pulled it together. I get the impression of a woman who has decided to just bear up. She's decided to get it right. She's decided to put things in order. She's decided to move on with her life, to just be okay to put on the face of blamelessness and righteousness and just walk the journey in the way and suppress the emotions and hold it all in. And, and even when it is announced to her that she is about to have a child, she remains in seclusion. She remains closed up. She remains closely held. 
As I think about these three stories and I think about the longing, I, I think there are several things that stand out to me that I think you and I ought to talk about this morning and we ought to come to understand in these moments together and how it might apply to you and I. Five things specifically that I think matter significantly. The first one is this. Longing cannot be about the outcomes. It cannot be about the outcomes. I'm guessing this morning that if I were to say to you, I want to draw some conclusions from these three stories, and what I want to create out of these three stories are a formula by which you can get God to do what you want Him to do. I would say that you and I would probably say, yeah, let's do that. Let's figure, I have been asking for that forever. I'd like to know where I stop and God begins. I'd like to know what I need to do in order for God to do the things I need Him to do. In fact, if I'm honest, I spend a tremendous amount of my energy and my spiritual journey trying to figure out what I need to do to get God to give me the longings of my heart. And here's the deal. Here are three stories that span an enormous amount of time, millennia. And I can only imagine how many women in this process of time did not get the child they desired. You, you, you can't tell me that every woman who had a longing for a child in this 2,000-year expanse of time had that longing fulfilled. This can't be about the outcome. This process of longing and how we deal with it is not about ultimately figuring out some formula by which God must do what we ask or that somehow we're in control of that. Listen, you talk about feeling overwhelmed and depressed and sad. When we start believing that the next thing I do or the thing I don't do is going to either give me or not give me the longings of my heart or going to trigger God in some way. Man, that's, that's hard to get up in the morning. That's hard to live in. And so as we talk about longing and dealing with it in a healthy way, it, it can't be about outcomes. Second thing... My observation is that Rachel planned. <laughs> Rachel planned. How does she deal with her longing? She planned. And I'm being nice. Because I don't think she actually planned. I think what she actually did was plotted. I, I think she actually rose to the level of conniving. I think she rose to the level of saying, I'm going to get what I'm going to get. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get what I need. And I'm going to find a way to get it. And I'll do whatever it takes. I'm going to win. And she did. She pushed and pursued and fought and connived and presented new wives into the occasion so that she could beat her sister, so that she could have more children, so that she could somehow enter into this space where she felt validated and significant. And she planned and she plotted and she connived. And I don't know about you, but I do see in my own heart and in my own life that I behave this way. That when I have longing and I don't feel like God is coming along in the way that I plan. And on a good day, I plan. 
I think about, I organize, I, I structure things. And on a bad day, I connive, plot. I conceive of all kinds of ways in which God might give me what I want and justify ways in which I might obtain them. And it seems to me that, that you and I, if we were to accept this truth, that I don't get to choose outcomes. That's not my place. We talked about it a few weeks ago. I'm not in the fruit business. I'm in the soil business. I, I don't get to choose outcomes. And all of my planning and all of my plotting and all of my conniving does not ultimately lead me to the outcomes that I want. Number three, Rachel planned, but Hannah prayed. Hannah prayed. Now, I'm guessing that you would be at this point saying, oh, here's the good one. Here's the one we are away with. This is what we all do. We're supposed to all pray. I just want to observe a couple of things about that. So Hannah prayed, and the nature of the prayer was anguished prayer. She was anguished. In fact, she was anguished to the point that she began a kind of prayer that maybe you're familiar with. It's sort of an anguished, desperate, bargaining with God kind of prayer. If you will, then I will. If I do, will you? She gets into this mode where she's bargaining with God in this prayer. So deep is the anguish of this prayer, so deep is this disturbance of a prayer that she is emotionally unavailable for the moment, that she is mentally unavailable, so that when Eli observes her, he considers that she is not in her right mind, that something has caused her to be off. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me that that is not how God desires us to pray in the face of our longing. I mean, I know that we're told that Jesus prays an anguished prayer in the garden, but he doesn't stay with the anguished prayer. At some point, he works his way through that anguished prayer to another prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Hannah leaves that space of prayer with the bargain on the table. If you will, then I will. It seems to me that maybe in these days there's some of us that really understand. Because when we pray, it's a God-bargaining, wrestling match in which we become emotionally and mentally unavailable for the things that are happening around us because we have been taken aside into another kind of space where our sadness and our sense of longing that people would look at us and go, I don't know if you're all here. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what's happening to you. You seem maybe you're impaired in some significant way. Number four, Elizabeth perfected. Now, I don't know if this is true. We don't get enough information, but what if the simple words that Luke writes about Elizabeth and Zechariah are symptomatic of her as a person. She was righteous and blameless. I wonder if maybe Elizabeth perfecting is something she told herself, something we tell ourselves, 
And that is, if I get it right, God will meet my longing. If I get it all right, if, if I do the right thing, if I say the right thing, if I feel the right thing, if I, if I worship in the right way, if I keep all the rules, if I don't get angry, if I don't lose it, if I, if I clean it up, if I don't mess up, if I, if I do something special for the people around me, if I'm beloved and wonderful and always gracious and kind and blah, 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 then God will have to give me the longing of my heart. I can't prove that that's the nature of Elizabeth and what's going on, but it seems to me it's a valid way in which you and I deal with longing. I wonder this morning if right now in the face of all that we're going through as a country and our politics, with COVID, with education, with all the things that are going on, how many of us are thinking, if I just get it right, if I just get it right, if I just get it right, if the country gets it right, if, if so-and-so, if, ever, uh, if I just get it right, all these things are going to work out. Man, that's an enormous amount of pressure we put on ourselves. If I could just stop getting angry, if I just didn't feel sad, if I was just happier, if I was just more pleasant, if I just made more money, if I just had a better job, if my kids just understood me better, if my parents just understood me better, if, if I just got, if everything came online in the way, if I just towed the line and I kept everything exactly, then God would certainly have to give me the desires of my heart. And I think maybe... It is a way in which you and I engage with longing. Number five, the outcomes were really about God. The outcomes were really about God. I, I think the impression that when I look at this, these stories and I, and I try to step back from them and I recognize the longing in all of their lives and I recognize everything they did, it really had very little to do it didn't have very much to do with Rachel's planning and plotting, and it didn't have very much to do with Hannah's praying, and it didn't have very much to do with Elizabeth perfecting. What it really had to do with was the timing of God's will in their lives. What it really had to do with was the narrative that God was unfolding of His redemptive story that involved them and the children they would bear. What really told the story was not their individual behaviors or choices or how they decided to deal with their longing. What really determined the outcomes was the will and the power of God manifest in their lives. And here's the crazy part. That's what we believe. Now let me ask you this. How many of you rest in that reality? How many of us would say, you know what, I, I'm going to responsibly plan and give it my best. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray and unload the anguish, but I'm going to move through that part of the prayer into a place of surrender where I lay it down and let it go. And I'm going to do my best to get it right, but I'm never going to believe that my rightness is going to make or break the whole story. I'm going to lean into the grace of God and the mercy of God and the will of God and the purpose of God 
And I'm going to lean into it in terms of my own life and my own heart and my own purpose and my own significance and what's going to happen with me and what needs to happen with me. How my voice gets heard or doesn't get heard. And I'm going to trust it for the way my, my world works. I'm going to trust it in the politics of my country. I'm going to stop believing that I am vulnerable to everything that comes down the pipe. I'm going to stop believing all that stuff and believe instead that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and I will plan for it and pray for it, and I will perfect for it, but I will ultimately trust God for the outcomes of my life and my journey and the purpose for which I live. I cannot conceive of a world in which God's will does not ultimately define what happens and your purpose and my purpose in all things. God works for the good of his kingdom, of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. There's a simple old song. This is my father's world. And I think some of us in the middle of our longings need to just remember, this is my father's world. I don't have to fix everything. This world has been through all kinds of chaos, through all kinds of stuff, and it's still my father's world. And what was intended for evil, God has consistently used for good. No discipline is pleasant at the time. But God uses it to grow us up and deepen us and mature us. And my great concern right now in the middle of all that we're facing is that our longings are beginning to define our behaviors instead of our faith. You and I, we're called to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth a source of peace and grace and hope and encouragement. We're not the people that are pouring fuel on the fire, the, the, the fire of discontent and the fire of fear and the fire of loneliness. We are the people who band together and love each other, who, who throw our arms open and believe that the kingdom of God is like a body, and not everybody can be a foot or everybody a hand or everybody an eye, but every single part of the body is vital to its existence. And the foot can't say to the eye, because I am not the eye, I am not a part of the body. No, every single part has significance. This is who we are. This is the story of our longing. Yes, we long for a Savior. We long for the kingdom of God to come. We're in the pains of childbirth. The whole earth is groaning in the pains of childbirth. Not just the earth, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies. But who hopes for what they already have? And if we do not yet have it, we wait Listen, we wait for it patiently. Are you waiting patiently in the face of the longing? We're going to close. I'm going to invite the band to come back.
And we're going to sing the powerful words of this hymn, All to Jesus I Surrender. And here's the thing, you don't have to surrender. (laughs) But whether you do or whether you don't, it really is still up to God. It really is still His fight. It really is still His to control the outcomes of our journey, of our life, of our longing. So I'd like a privilege to just pray over you before we sing that as our closing today. God, would you help us? We so need you. We acknowledge that we get ourselves twisted up because we really start to believe that everything is about the outcomes we desire. That we see it, we understand it, we get it. We know what ought to happen and how it ought to happen and when it ought to happen. We know who the good guys are and we know who the bad guys are. And we're naming names. And the truth of the matter is the outcomes aren't up to us. In fact, you've told us again and again that it's not about the outcome. It's about the condition of our heart. It's about the condition of our heart. It's about our ability to form around the person and image of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would examine our hearts. Whether the outcomes we seek are about politics or the world or whether they're about something very personal in our own homes and families and hearts and lives. We want to surrender that to you. We want to surrender it to you, all of it. Lay it at your feet. We know you stand for justice. We know you stand for peace. We know you stand for mercy. And we stand in that grace. And we humble ourselves to follow after one thing. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That ought to bind us together. That ought to hold every one of us in unity of this faith. Take our plans and use them in whatever way you see fit. Call us to do the good work, but allow us to lay those things down before we plot and connive and angle and do all the things that create incredible stress and dysfunction. And teach us to pray. Pray our hearts and pray our anguish, but pray through our anguish to a place of surrender. And remind us that while you call us to do the good work, we will never walk in perfection. And you measure us by grace. And you allow your righteousness to fill up what is lacking. Your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And teach every one of us. Please teach every one of us to surrender ourselves to your great story. To your great will and to trust that you are in control. This is my Father's world. We lift these words to you. They are the passion of our heart. Hear them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.